Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hey everyone, we are here on Seller Roundtable episode number 44. I'm Amy Wees and my partner Andy Arnott is having a birthday today so we're going to give him the day off and I'm here with my special guest Brandon Dupski. Hey, welcome, Brandon. How's it going? Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> awesome. So I met Brandon at um, in Hong Kong at Global Sources, and he gave a really cool presentation. And just networking with him and hearing his story, you guys, he's been in e-commerce since like I don't even know, since before e-commerce started. He's like one of the original founders of e-commerce, I think. Um, so, you know, it's great That's to have- That's an exaggeration, but okay. <laughs> Brandon's like, I'm gonna go with it. I'm doing it. No, so it's so great to have you, Brandon. And, um, and we can't wait to hear your story. And, uh, you know, you have a presentation for us today. So I'm gonna let you share the screen and, um, and get started introducing yourself for us. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I put some slides together. I'm a visual person, so I like to see, you know, I have a better memory when I see it. Um, and you're welcome. Anybody's welcome to, you know, ask questions along the way. I, otherwise, I just can't keep going and going and going. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sounds good. That's why we have a, the live audience so that they can um, ask questions in the chat. So I'll be monitoring the chat. And I don't know if I can see the tab from or the, the chat from this angle. I don't see it anymore. All right. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, as, as Amy mentioned, I you know, have been in e-commerce for 21 years. So started in 1998. Um, so it's, I've, I've had a lot of experience of the early days, you know, the, the dot-com bubble, I suppose. And then um, just, the, you know, the changes from eBay dominating the market or the U.S. marketplace to Amazon dominated to Alibaba being a player and, all, you know, all these things that have kind of evolved over time. So um, I've had to adapt a lot over the last 21 years. And so I just named this uh, presentation Adapt or Die, okay? Um, just a little bit of, of my experience. I feel like I've had to do that multiple times. So I thought that was appropriate for uh, the name of today's presentation. Um, all right, so I tried to summarize everything in one slide first, just to give you the big picture, okay? So, started in 1998, um, my, I was younger then, um, just getting into e-commerce, and my vision was go big or go home, right? I wanted, to, I had a goal, I wanted to be, in this case, eBay was the big marketplace, it had 25% of the online market, um, I wanted to be the biggest eBay seller, that was my, my personal goal. Um, and I started a company called Sell to All, and in 2004, my company was up there in the top one, two, or threes largest companies on eBay. And that's gross dollars, not feedback, not number of transactions, dollars. That was before the car dealers and um, Disney and some of these early big corporations started coming in, and obviously they had the, the wherewithal to, to, to knock me off the top. But, um, and I'm going to go deeper into that story in just a moment. But in 2006, I went out of business, um, went belly up. I called it belly up. Um, and that's not me, actually, but that's what I felt like. Um, it was a bad time in my life. 2006, I went out of business. The largest company on eBay goes bankrupt. Um, and I struggled to try to save the company, did all kinds of things. And I'll go, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about 
those early days. So that was the, my, you know, build, it was a venture, build a big company, um, an e-commerce company, um, lots of employees, lots of product, lots of moving parts. That was an organization. It was a venture. I was kind of burned out, tired, but I loved e-commerce. So I wanted to start over in 2006. Um, I started, you know, I had to reflect a little bit and I came up with what I called my one, 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 one goal. And I'll talk about that in a minute, um, which kind of drove uh, what, what my friends call Brandon 2.0, um, my next version of e-commerce. And I did a lot of consulting, a lot of coaching, and a lot of speaking. I traveled around the world. I was on stage. I was on TV talking about how to sell on eBay. And here I am. I just went out of business and I'm telling people how to do it. So it was a little bit ironic, but I still had the experience. And I told people, hey, you know, I went out of business. I'm starting over. Um, but I had the experience and I found out people actually appreciated the fact that I could tell lessons of uh, failures versus just everything, how everything's successful, right? And they appreciated the, you know, the lessons I taught them or I shared. So since 2006 and until now, I've, I say I've kind of been living the dream. Um, it's a lifestyle business. And, I'll, and again, I'll, I'll spend a, a few, I've got a couple slides to explain what I did in this stage of my, of my e-commerce career. And then in 2018, I've started a company called Backtrack. And that's really, um, I'm going full circle now. This is like, okay, my kids are getting older. They're not, you know, I'm not traveling on vacations with them as much like I, like I did. Um, my daughter's in college now. My son's going to graduate in high school in a couple of years. I want to I want to do something a little bit bigger, and so this is back. This is 2018. I started Backtrack, and this is a venture again. And I'm going to share just a, a one or two slides again, talking about that. So this is the big picture, okay? So let's dive into the first eight years, <clears throat> a little bit more. Brandon 1.0. Like I said, it was go big or go home. Um, and this was my first office. Uh, there's a lot of lessons I'll try to throw in along the way. This is me starting from scratch in 1998. Now, and for those of you who are listening and can't see this picture, um, there are some really big old tube computer screens here, and <laughs> it's a it's not a very not a very fancy office. Uh, describe this office to us, Brandon. Where was it located, and um, what was it all about? How did you get your first office? Okay, so I I hired three interns from the University of Nebraska before I had this office. So we used to have meetings at Arby's, you know, because nobody we didn't have an office. But I found this uh, where a local business that had warehouse space, and I traded. This was his closet. So he used this little room for his closet. And I said, if you let me use that closet, I'll list your stuff and sell it on eBay for you for free. So I traded services for office space and warehouse space. So he allowed me to bring in truckloads of inventory into his warehouse. So I creatively created my opportunity by bartering. I didn't have the money back then to pay for rent. This was a new venture. And I had employees that I had to pay in um, four to six months at the end of the semester as, uh, as interns, I had to pay them. So I had to come up with income quickly to pay them. And I bartered for this warehouse or this office. We used, we, um, at the, in the evening after, you know, I was working a full-time job going, you know, going to school, getting my MBA at this time, we used dial internet access. So we'd steal his internet phone line or telephone line and dial up two computers onto the internet. So this was our first office that I got and I bartered for. It. Okay. <laughs> Um, and 
this was our second office. So about a year later, we outgrew that. I hired more employees, um, more interns. That was a creative way for me to get started with resources back then because you really didn't have virtual assistants back then. Um, it was not, not, Brandon, a, not a concept. Were you, were you all this product here? Can you tell us a little bit about, and you guys who are listening, there is a pretty well-organized warehouse, but it's a lot of product. It is a lot of boxes. So Brandon, tell us a little bit about the inventory that we're looking at and where you are selling it and how you are selling it. Okay, good question. I actually chose these photos because these store these photos of this product have stories. So um, the, on the on the top left, I don't know if I can have a pointer or not, but on the top left, you see all these uh, consoles. They're for vans, you know, uh, that go between the seats, plastic consoles. There's pallets and pallets and pallets of it. So I bought a surplus, a truckload of these. Um, they're overstocked. They're liquidation. They're the company that produced these was uh, building a new model. They wanted to get rid of them. I negotiated, I knew um, the, the, one of the executives at this company, so I had a little bit of negotiation leverage. He wanted to sell it to me. I offered a, a lowball offer because there was a whole bunch of them. I said, I'll pay you a dollar each, um, which turned out to be a lot because it was a truckload for him, right? So I still had a lot of money added up. But I paid a dollar each for the whole truckload. I didn't really have the space for it. Um, and I'll take it all, I'll pay the shipping. And, and, and we cut a deal. I ended up selling those for about 30 to 40 bucks a piece on eBay. We'd sell five or 10 a day. Um, and it was a very big win for me for the, you know, starting off. That was one I was like, yeah, you know, I, I bought so well. So you paid a dollar for them and you sold them for between 30 to $40. You got to take the shipping out of that, right? Because you paid a little bit for shipping, but ultimately you had a, at least, you know, at mm -hmm. least, a 50% ROI even after shipping, maybe even more than that, 70%, right? Okay. Um, Back yeah. then, there was not free shipping. Oh, so you had to ship each one of those big boxes out to customers. And we, and we pay, yeah, there was not free shipping. So we actually charged the customer for shipping. Ah, so you didn't have to pay. Yeah. It wasn't like FBA back then. Nothing was, nothing was fulfilled by anyone except for us, right? So you would... Um, get the, the order on eBay and then you could charge the customer or you could offer, you know, a portion of shipping or extra fast shipping or whatever. So basically it was a total win for you. It was a very big win, but, but honestly we would charge extra for shipping. So back in the early days of e-commerce, if you, if you paid UPS $15, you'd charge the customer 20 or 25. So shipping was a profit center back in the early e-commerce days was not free shipping. You didn't have to bake it into the cost. I call free shipping easy math because we used to, you know, it's just easier for the customer to calculate a total because they can't add the total, you know, shipping plus cost together. But um, anyway, so we, we actually made a good money. So on the second photo is a, is truck is um, high chairs. They're, they're stacked in the back high chairs. Rubbermaid came to me and said, we have all this, all, you know, we have five truckloads of high share, high chairs, trash cans, plastic containers, discontinued product, take it off our hands, sell it. And I bought, I got it on consignment. So here I am, I've got 1200 square foot of warehouse space and they offered to send me five truckloads of product. I can't fit five truckloads in here. So I had to go out and scramble and find backup warehouse space, but I took the product for free. I sold it. I charged the commission and we made a ton of money off of that. Um, and then third was the, the pallets in front, those crates, those are tools. Another one of those big buys, I'll buy, uh, was four to five truckloads of tools for $25,000. I, 
I had to put a lot of money up front, but I knew this product very well. It was, it was about a $250,000 sale over the course of multiple years after I turned it around and resold it. So back in the early days, I was buying or consigning large chunks of surplus and liquidation inventory and selling it on eBay. And, and these are good examples of that. And when you say back in the early days, what year was this, you said? 2000 and 2001. Wow. I don't even remember eBay being big back then, but obviously there was some in income potential there. And that was really like kind of the beginning of people really starting to get things online, wouldn't you say? Yeah, when I, start, when I joined in 1998, eBay was, uh, had a million users, buyers and sellers, not just sellers. A million users. I was within, within the top 1 million registered users because they used to count your, your, your account number was a number. Um, and they were not a public company. They were going public that year. So eBay was five to six years old. It was still fairly young, but it was growing. It was a wild, wild west. It was growing fast. Wow. So, and, you know, obviously we squeezed about seven or eight employees into a very small office. We were pretty co cozy there. So, Moving forward, this is, the, this is my third office and warehouse. Again, um, this is when things got bigger. They got bigger faster. And so and was that whole building yours, the one that's in the top right there? You guys, it's a big old, like it looks like a huge warehouse. It, we had half of that building. And how many and square so feet still is big. that? And it's high ceiling. We had narrow aisle pallet racking and so forth. So we use that space efficiently. Wow. Um, and how many employees did you have at this time? So as we, we started adding seven to eight employees every month, month after month after month. And so we went through this massive growth stage of hiring, training, you know, letting them go into the, you know, on, onto the floor to work and, uh, you know, and, and uh, learning by, you know, from examples, learning with experience. So ended up having uh, around 60 to 70 employees at the peak. Um, and we crammed ourselves into this office, you know, chair after chair after chair with the big old CRT monitors, you know, when we had 20, we used to have IBM and Dell and Gateway as clients for us. So we'd buy our inventory from them sometimes. So we get these big 21 inch CRT screens and so forth. And that was a, that was a prize for the, the marketing guys in those photos. So basically, you know, in this photo, you see large pallet racking, you know, lots of people in, in office chairs next to each other. It looks like a sweatshop, but we had fun. It's a college crowd, you know, of, of employees. So a lot of automation, a lot of um, technology here, which I, which I can share in the next photo. So the technology was one of those things that I spent a ton of time, money, and energy on. So back in the day, there was no off-the-shelf systems to really manage a multi-million dollar business doing, you know, one to two million dollars a month on eBay. And we had 50 different um, drop shippers drop shipping for us every day. We were shipping a truckload of product of our own and we were shipping a truckload equivalent of drop shipping product. And, and so technology became a big factor for us. So I had seven in-house programmers writing code for me every day. I hired a team and we built our own software. I spent half a million dollars on salaries for software. And so our technology, and if you can see in that front left, top left photo, is a guy holding a Palm Pilot. Back then, Palm Pilots were popular, and he had a barcode scanner attached to it. And we built our own software to connect up to the Palm Pilot so that we could scan barcodes, track inventory, packing slips, all that fun stuff for I, warehousing inventory control. I used to have one of those Palm Pilots, and I remember it was so cool to be able to like have your calendar on there. It was like 
It was way cool before cell phones were cool, right? Before yep. smartphones, that was like you had to have one of those. Yeah, we didn't want to spend a um, large amount of money on those warehouse, you know, barcode scanners with a screen on them because those are thousands and thousands of dollars each. We, we went and bought Palm Pilots and created our software to work with it. And so this sell to all software is your software that you developed and it brought and, and then this photo on the right here where you have it on Google and you've got all these arrows going on. Um, when you're saying these are partners, um, all these search results, uh, what does that, what does that mean? You had more sellers in your network? So that was us. That was just showing our power. That was one of my sales pitches to factories or not really factories, distributors. When I wanted to do business with, I said, I can sell your product better than anybody else. Look, you search for this um, MP3 player and I'm on number one, number two, number three, or four, six, eight. Page one, I'm on there five times. And the partners is like our listing on eBay or our listing on Amazon or a listing on our website and so forth. So those are our listings on different marketplaces, just showing that we can, we were very good at getting on the top of Google search back in the early days and paid for, pay for, pay for advertising. So I, mean, I had a sales pitch and I told people, if you like, like Kicker, you know, Kicker was a, a car audio brand that I did a lot of business with. I said, you can have, and you know, anybody selling your product, but they might not represent you right. And I will represent your product correctly. If you allow me to sell it, I will drown everybody else out, drown the noise and cover it up with positive message, positive experience, positive, you know, retailing and controlled pricing. And so that was my way of capturing product by, by proving to people that I could be their voice. Awesome. And, you know, this is really appealing for somebody who does the wholesale Amazon model, right? Where they're trying to reach out to brands and trying to um, get those brands to sign up for exclusive partnerships for e-commerce with those brands. Imagine you wholesalers out there, if you could show um, your search results for one of your very popular exclusive brands selling in all of these different channels, eBay, Amazon, you know, at the top of Google search results. I mean, that would tell a story right there. Talk about a sales pitch. That's really cool. And, good, and good you're tip, Brandon. <laughs> when when um, the internet was kind of a new channel, map pricing, minimum minimum advertised pricing was a huge issue for all these these manufacturers who had dealerships and relationships in the traditional retail world. Their products were on the on the internet cheaper, and they were trying to control that. And so I agreed to them. I said, I will sell your A stock, your normal products at map pricing. I will drown out the noise because I can beat them in search. But give me all your liquidation. Give me all of your surplus, your refurbished. I want exclusivity on your refurbished and your surplus, and I'll list and sell all your A stocks at map. So that was my that was one of my approaches that that worked really well in the early days until they said, oh well, Brandon's doing a million dollars or more a year with us. Why can't we double that with another seller and another seller and another seller? And so my my first mover advantage of being exclusive didn't. Uh, didn't last long enough, so to speak. Got it. All right. So technology was a big piece. Um, and this is this was our magic formula. I just want to share this slide. Um, we spent months fine-tuning this charge and the math that went behind it. This was our listing intelligence. We had thousands of products. We had to list it on eBay. eBay had a listing fee. You had to pay to list. I was spending $75,000 a month on eBay. Fees. Mm. 
$75,000 a month on eBay fees or yes. listing fees? Listing, uh, featuring it so that it could be higher in search, and final value fees. Wow. And, and you were charging the customer for shipping back then, right? So yep. at least you, didn't, you weren't paying for that. But that's a lot of fees. And how much inventory would you say you had in stock with okay. those kind of fees? 1.5 million. We were sitting on 1.5 million usually in inventory. Wow. And is that a truckload, the, a truckload would come and go every day. That's the revenue value of that inventory. Uh, probably cost. Okay. Got it. Got it. And we had consignment inventory and other things. So not all that inventory had a cost. And at but, this time you were selling not only on eBay, were you also selling on Amazon and, but eBay was your primary channel eBay was the only channel in the beginning, right? Or your, you know, Yahoo, if you want to count it. But there was other ones, I guess, Overstock. You know, so that eBay wasn't the only, but it was the 300-pound the gorilla or whatever. But um, Amazon, when it came to market, they went out and reached out to all the largest sellers on eBay. Hey, come to our third-party marketplace. We are opening it up. It's not just books anymore. I was one of the first sellers on Amazon back then as a third-party non-book seller, um, electronics. So... My friends who are also large sellers, we kind of all got first mover advantage onto Amazon. Now, uh, it, was a, it was a new marketplace, so, you know, it, it was great. We sold a lot of stuff, but it's not, you know, it was a different Amazon back then than it is today. But, um, yeah, so most of my, my, my business 1.0 is eBay and then Amazon in the, in the early days of, you know, 2003, 2004, 2005, when they just started opening up to, to third-party sellers non-books. But this, this, was our, this, this slide real quick is our listing intelligence. This was our formula to know if we should list the product, what we should price it at, should we feature it, and, you know, what's the optimization? Because we had thousands and thousands of products in our catalog, whether tools, toys, sporting goods, computers, car audio, you know, speakers, cell phones. We had all these different products, high chairs, right? And we didn't know whether we should list them or not. We couldn't have a human make that decision at that scale. So we created this listing intelligence, and this optimized our fees on, Am on eBay for listing fees because we paid, like I said, 75000 a month. And so we had to optimize that fee or we would have died. So we took this formula, and it was, our, it was our bloodline. I mean, this was what kept us growing, scaling, and optimizing. And crushing the competition who couldn't think that intelligently on that scale at, at one at this stage right so we we attacked that challenge head on with with math and i have all kinds of other charts like this but this was the was the was mo most important one okay um moving on this is still brandon 1.0 so uh, again team was important um and i don't have some i don't have any early slides of our team but we had fun it was a lot of high you know college students aged people for marketing, warehousing, you know, merchandising, customer service. And then I had, you know, um, a few old, uh, experienced people for accounting, finance, and so forth. Um, but we had fun, um, you know, whether we threw company parties at the bottom, uh, you can see us in our conference room. I had um, a meeting with my management team every Monday for lunch. I bought lunch for my five, it was actually seven, seven people and we called it the family meeting. And we went through um, the numbers for last week and the plan for this week for the entire company through that, you know, that family meeting. And at this time, you were, were you still mostly selling liquidation or were you moving on into trying to help manufacturers list their products or brands 
what was kind of your structure at this time in terms of growth and um, where you were getting your inventory? I'd say at this stage, 70% or so of our inventory came from wholesale, right? We buy it from uh, manufacturer, U.S. companies, U.S. distributors, you know, U.S. brands, U.S. Back then, it was all U.S. companies. It wasn't global at that point. And Bryn, do you think that there's still room to do what you did back then, right? You really just kind of were a forerunner in this, um, in this environment of bringing these businesses online. Do you think there's still space? I think a lot of people really struggle with the wholesale, you know, FBA model and stuff because the margin, there's so much competition. The companies can kind of do it themselves, right? And the margins are just not there for them to make money. You know, fees have gone up a lot. Shipping has become a problem. You're paying to ship it to your, your company, then your warehouse, then you're paying again to ship it to Amazon or you know, ship it to the customer and it's just really cutting into people's margins. And unless they can find that really good exclusive deal and negotiate pricing, it's tough. So what do you think about that? I'd be curious to think, do you think, uh, to know, do you think it's still possible to build something like this today with this same model where you're, you know, doing mostly wholesale? So, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, um, I would say it's, it's very difficult, right? Back in the day, I could, I would have exclusivity and exclusivity, that was key, right? You know, um, and that was my goal. I wanted to have exclusivity and I had contracts for that. I wrote my own contracts. But, um, so if you can't get exclusivity, you are, you know, you're swimming in a very bloody water, right? You're swimming with a lot of other sharks, a lot of other people looking to get that, you know, the same, they have the same advantages you have, so you don't have any advantages. So um, obviously that's not what I did with, business, with Brandon 2.0 because it is difficult. So if you can buy surplus, you know, and you buy all of it, like I tried to do a lot of times, if you can get exclusivity on those, then yes, it's still a, a business model that I consider very viable. But if you're just wholesaling, it is challenging. You have to come up with a way to add value to um, the, the process or the customer experience, the formula, or you will um, struggle. You will struggle. And what do you think are some of the ways that, um, that, today people would need to add value to get those exclusive deals can i answer that in a couple slides yes absolutely okay because I, really, I go deep i go deeper into that and it'll make more sense sure. so what brand you know so brand is actually part of the answer i guess um i came up with all these brands along the line along the last 21 years and a lot of i always felt like a brand has to have one meaning right and you have to be very clear about what that brand meaning is and so I love to come up with a brand and say, hey, this is what it means. Not all these brands on this chart ever made it to see the light of day, but some of them, some of them did in different versions and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, sell to all was all about selling surplus, you know, and selling to anybody and everybody or selling for anybody and everybody. And so it really had that, that brand image at the beginning, but then I started kind of changing it as the company grew, right? So I lost that focus. Um, and, and backtrack's all about customer returns, right? Autotain's all about my products of, of DVD players, which I'll talk more about. So branding is one of those things, and I love creating brands. I love even just, just the process of, of thinking about it, creating it, and then launching it. So this is something that, something I enjoy doing. Um, but here I am, 2000, you know, four, five, six, I'm in this hamster wheel. You know, it, it feels great. You're on this rocket ship. You're the number one seller on eBay, so to speak. Um, 
you've got, I'm in books, I'm on magazines, I've got, you know, newspaper articles, I'm on TV, I win all these awards, and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is fun, you know, this is, you get all these accolades, and you feel like you're successful, right, and, but I'm, but I'm, I'm running, I'm running in circles in a hamster wheel behind the scenes, right, I'm just trying to keep it getting bigger, otherwise I can't, you know, if it doesn't get bigger, and it doesn't get bigger, and it doesn't get bigger, all this investment that I made for a bigger company don't pay off. And so it's a hamster wheel. I felt like I had 60 to 65 employees coming to work for me, but I'm going to work every day for 60 to 65 employees. They need me as more, you know, as much as I need them or more, right? And so I felt like I was going to work for them every day. Couldn't, I couldn't miss. 2006, that's the train wreck, right? Um, I could talk all day about, you know, the struggles, the pains, um, you know, the challenges, but I was at a heart, heart attack level stress. You know, I hated firing employees. I felt guilty. I spent over a year and a half trying to save the company, get it profitable, negotiate, you know, terms. I woke up every night in a cold sweat after, you know, getting one hour sleep. And I realized, you know, I've got young kids. Let's, let's, you know, let's just turn this off. You know, it was going to, it was not going to end with a train wreck out of business, bankruptcy, done. Okay. Lots of debt, you know, not everything gets cleaned off and having to start over. I wanted to stay in e-commerce. I didn't want to go get a job. I loved buying and selling, building brands, merchandising. So I had to come up with my friends called it Brandon 2.0. And they said, we can't wait to see, you know, what, what's going what's to come up, what's going to be Brandon 2.0, what are you going to make, so on and so forth. And so this was, this was a stage where I said, okay, it's the four-hour work week was kind of popular, but I wanted to start with a why. Start with why, right? Simon Sinek. I just listened to his podcast again with my son um, not too long ago. But start with why. And, and I wanted a lifestyle business. I wanted to relax a little bit. I didn't want to stress it out. I didn't want to have to go to work for 65 people. And so I created a 1111 goal, which I'm going to talk about in the next slide. And I went out and did consulting, coaching, and speaking. Um, and that was a stage where I was busy. I actually, you know, did consulting for some very large e-commerce companies that you would know the names if I mentioned them. Um, and then traveling and speaking every weekend. Every weekend I was in two cities on stage from, I was the only speaker from 9 a.m. to like 3 or 4 p.m. all day, just me, and in rooms of 200 to 800 to, you know, sometimes 1,000, talking about how to sell an eBay. It was a fun time. You know, I mean, it was fun to get back into a game, right? I was back in the saddle a little bit, but I was still, I was still damaged and hurt and, Recovery. You're like was, the you're like the the earliest guru <laughs> with way with way too much you know work to do for one person and actual real experience to to help people with right yeah that's the one thing that I do have plenty of is a lot of experience and passion in this space no Lamborghini but, though <laughs> no no Lamborghini I, I do have a BMW but not a Lamborghini I'm there working I'm working on it all right. So I came up with this one, one, one goal. This was me reflecting, taking time, saying, what am I going to do differently this time? And I seriously, I got documents and, you know, papers that I, I, I brainstormed on for a long time. And I said, I wanted to have a one-man business. I really didn't want to have to go to work for other people, even though I'm the boss. I wanted to do a million dollars per year because I knew that the income from that would support my lifestyle and my family because I'm the only income for my family. I have been for the last 23, 25 years. Um, and so they depend on me to pay the bills. And so a million dollars a year, I could, with the margins, I could do that. 
in a year's time, I wanted to achieve this goal and I only wanted to work one hour a week. So this was my one, one, one goal. Wow. Um, one hour a week? A day, day. Sorry. No, I said okay. <laughs> I was going to say, okay, one hour a day. That's yep. even, that's still, you know, we've heard of the four hour work week, right? Yep. One hour a day, five days a week? It was about five or seven. Yeah. But I was traveling to, I was out of town speaking at conferences Saturday and Sunday. So it was five days a week at this point. And I was, I was managing a trade group. I was consulting for some large e-commerce companies for about 20 to 30 hours a week. So I was too busy to really spend much more than an hour a day on this. So that was one of my, that was one of my ingredients to success. I forced myself to think about how to do this. I only had about an hour a day left, right? So I forced myself to build a business that would only need me for that much time. And so obviously a lot of outsourcing. Um, the second thing that I came up with was this. I, I was, and this was just me talking to myself. And so I said, keep this in mind. And so I wrote this formula, you know, big profits. I want to have big profits by working smart, um, by, by doing a small amount of work, but, we're, but being very smart about it. So big profits come from small amount of work times big smarts. I want to be very smart about how I do this, right? And it was the working smart, not hard kind of, you know, concept. But this is me putting it and I, and I posted it right there on my, on my computer monitor. Um, and it was there for 12 years. I changed monitors recently, so it's not on my new monitor. because so I gave it to my son. Big profits was your goal. And, yep. and you said that your formula for big profits was to work small, small amount of work, and work very smartly. So you yep. wanted to work as little as possible in the smartest way possible in order to make the most profit possible, your own profit law. That was my profit law. And I tried to keep those two things, the one, 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 one as a goal, right? And this was a formula to try to balance off my activities behind is my, am I working smarter or am I working harder? Am I working smarter or am I working harder? Um, and, and all of us are on our, you know, on pins and needles wanting to know and I know you're going to get to it by the end of this, but uh, you know, did he pull off his goal and how did he do it if he did? So yeah, looking yeah. forward to hearing about that. So I've got a couple slides. Yeah. I mean, of course I've got, I've got a little more client, you know, conclusion coming for that. Right. So one of the things I learned is, and, and I used, I have a, a few of these rules that I, I shared with other people over the years that, you know, I've learned on the lifestyle business. And one thing is, is spending time does not mean you're being productive. So I, I, I did achieve my one, one, one goal. In 2007, I had a million dollar business again, and I was traveling and I was only spending an hour a day on it. Um, but in about 2009, 2010, I'm like, well, what if I just went and worked full time again? I, you know, on this, what if I, you know, didn't do the consulting and didn't, I, I, I got rid of that big contract. I finished it. Right. Um, I was not speaking and traveling as much less often. I'm like, I got a lot more time. Let's see if I could turn this into an $8 million business if I spend eight hours a day. Right. Whatever. And so I rented an office in a warehouse again in 2009. What I found out is I was driving to work at eight o'clock, even though I didn't have to be there at eight o'clock. I was leaving at five o'clock, even though I didn't have to leave at five o'clock. Nothing forced me to stay there. And I filled that time with stuff. You know, websites, yeah. emails, flyers, product sourcing, all this stuff. But I didn't, I lost my P equals WS formula, right? I wasn't working smart. And I filled my time with being busy, 
but not being productive. It took me a few years to figure that out. So I fell off, you know, the, I fell out of the saddle for a while of the lifestyle business, and I closed that office down, moved back into my home as my home office where I'm at now, and figured out I need to go back to working a little bit smarter and less time because it's not I'm not being that eight times more productive if I spent eight times more time. The second thing that I really figured out along the way was is the more moving parts you got, the more time it takes to manage them. So in my first business, here I am selling thousands of products each, and to be competitive, you lose, you make less margin. Now I was making more than a dollar each, but you make less profit. And a lot of people, this is the goal. I want to, you know, I want to do a million dollars in sales, but they don't figure out the other half of the formula. They they forget about it. And so I tell people, you know, this is one of the key things for me is I chose not to sell low margin products. And in my next slide or so, I will share what I did. But I went after higher dollar product lines on purpose so I didn't have to sell as much. So instead of selling 10,000, I only had to sell 100, let's say, a month um, to get this goal of if I wanted to make 10,000 a month. These are just fictitious numbers. But this, was the, this is the concept. So create a business model that doesn't require as much moving parts, if possible. And this, this, this one... Um, tip or law or whatever you want to call it is has helped a lot of people, you know, streamline their business when they remember this. So what I did is in Brandon 2.0, I sourced hundred percent from China. So to answer your wholesale business, I did not believe wholesaling was the way for me to go the second time unless I wholesaled from China. So more of a private label, if you want to call it, right? I went, 2006, I started going to Hong Kong trade shows. I went to Canton Fair sometimes. Um, and I've been sourcing from China since 2006. Now, I was drop shipping from China in 2004 or 5. Um, and so I was kind of started having some relationships there with my old business. But that's where I started with my new business called OnFair. Okay. Um, then I, building brands was important. So I built a retail brand and a, a product brand. Um, I set up a virtual team in Bangladesh, which did all of my emailing, my website blogging. You know, I would create the content, but they would actually disperse it. They would deliver it. They would duplicate it for me, but rewrite it. They would do a lot of graphic stuff. They would do a lot of copywriting stuff for me. And then I outsourced the warehousing, which I don't have a photo. Of. So then, just to kind of bring this, well, I'll let you. I'll let you end on uh, on the last thing that you did, which has to do with vacations. But then I have a question about that. Oh, and 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 then it was. This was my personal goal. I wanted to show my kids the world, right? And so we just went on. We we go on vacations every year, one or two or three of them, spring break. You know, once in the beginning of the summer, once in the end. They're two weeks long when they're possible, and just trying to show the world. And that that was my reward for all this. Is I, I didn't care. I didn't. I don't have the Lamborghini, but I took my family and I showed them the world over these last 12, 13 years. And that's that is me. that's your Lamborghini right there. That's what we it always is. say. Like, what's your Lamborghini, right? And and my Lamborghini is just more time with my family and getting to help other entrepreneurs and be part of their story. That's my Lamborghini, right? I don't need the car. Yep. Um, 
So your Lamborghini is that family time and getting to see the world. And I think that is a really cool Lamborghini. I would trade that for a Lamborghini any day or trade a Lamborghini for that any day. So yep. basically, Brandon, you pulled off your goal of only working very little every day. And this was obviously, it seems like, to uh, just touch base with these various moving parts in your business that were these, the, your team of virtual assistants in Bangladesh, um, which you have to tell us how you did that. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, you built your own brands. Um, so your, your own brand. So you sourced from China and those were your private label brands. Yeah. So they built, they built the product for me. Usually I would pick an item that they already mass produced, but I'd say, put my brand on it, change a little bit of this or change, add this accessory. I always wanted to make the product different and unique. Um, and I'll, I think I've got one slide later on that goes a little bit deeper into my strategy on how, how you asked earlier, you know, how do you make yourself, make yourself unique? I've got a slide on that. Um, so your, when you sourced 100% from China, back then, um, you know, I can't even imagine going to China as an eBay seller, right? Like, I, I could barely imagine going to China now, even though I go a couple of times a year. So what is it, um, you know, what was that like for you? Did you just go to China and how did you find these suppliers? I don't think Alibaba was a thing back then, right? I don't know. So tell they us were. about that. Yeah, Alibaba has been a thing for since 2002, even more earlier, but, um, so Alibaba, so my, when, I go to, when I go find suppliers in the beginning, it was Hong Kong trade shows, Global Sources, HKTDC. But you're right, there wasn't a lot of eBay sellers back in 2008, 2007, and so forth, right? Those were, those were years that it was still a newer concept. But in 2008, Alibaba gave me an e-business man of the year award, and they flew me to Hangzhou, which is where they're located. And um, Jack Ma had a conference there that they invited me to. And so I got the experience of going to a Chinese-dominated economic conference hosted by Alibaba in Hangzhou, and then get to explore Hangzhou a little bit, Westlake, and so on and so forth. So back in that day, um, it was, you know, people were, they were getting visitors more and more, but I was still a rare um, vision for them, right? So I'd be walking down the street in Hangzhou, and um, Chinese, older Chinese guys, I remember, would ride his bike and just, like, you know, like, what, what, what did I just see? I saw a white guy here, you know, and so I was, you know, I stood out. Um, and I would be, you know, at the park and the, the ladies would have her son go sit next to him and get a picture, you know, so they wanted their picture with me. And so I was just, um, it was fun being in a different environment like that. But um, nowadays, you know, you know, it's not new anymore. It's not. Got it. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at SellerRoundTable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, SellerSEO.com and AmazingAtHome.com.